Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. This episode is an interview with British science fiction author Alistair Reynolds. To date, Alistair has written 12 novels and around 50 short stories, and he has been publishing his work for the past 25 years. From 1992 to 2004, he was a scientist with the European Space Agency in the Netherlands. He returned to his native Wales in 2008. Over the course of his career as a writer, he has been shortlisted for the Hugo and Arthur C. Clarke Awards and has won the Saiyan and Sidewise Awards. Alistair's new novel, Poseidon's Wake, which is the third in the Poseidon's Children series, will be published by Galantz next month. That's April 2015. We had a fascinating conversation about the challenges of writing sci-fi in the near and far future, who Alistair's sci-fi heroes are, and the status of science fiction today. If you're a fan of Al's work, then you'll love this interview. Here it is. Hello, Al. Hello, Andrew. Welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt. Good to have you with us. Good to be here. Thank you. I want to start by asking you a couple of questions about how you first got into writing and science fiction and how your professional background kind of pointed you towards writing and and the science fiction genre. Well, I've been writing stories, I think, almost from the point that I could pick up a pen, way back in junior school or primary school even. I remember my father took me to see uh, Double Bill of James Bond film. It was a Goldfinger from Russia with Love. And I came back and I just wanted to write stories about gadgets and cars. I suppose even then you could see there was a sort of interest in the technology, I suppose. I mean, I had that sort of urge to write stories in a very early age. Right from my school years, I was always either drawing or doing um, little creative writing assignments. And that sort of, I suppose at some point, way before my teens, I just started writing things anyway. And I started producing stories for no other reason than to write them for myself. Right. Um, science fiction is your genre. What is it that you think drew you into that? Did that did that just come over gradually over time? I know you were obviously interested in gadgets from the start, but how did that happen? Well, I had two overriding passions from an early age. One was space, space travel, space exploration in the future. I suppose almost inevitably that led me towards thinking about at some point having a career in science, but it also opened the door to the fascination of science fiction. Couldn't begin to tell you where that came from. I mean, there was a lot of it around there. Star Trek was on television. Two of my favourite television programs when I was very small. I'm talking about five or six. One was Star Trek. Uh, the other one was the Virginian, and you know, I ended up fascinated by cowboy films and horses as well, and I ride horses. Formative influences do count for an awful lot in life, but it's very hard to disentangle them. But certainly, I quickly identified the science fiction that really fascinated me. Whenever there was a science fiction film on television or a science fiction series, I would watch it avidly and obsess about it for weeks and months. Also because you couldn't record things back then. What, what you saw was what you got. It lived on in your imagination from that point on, whether it was Doctor Who or Thunderbirds or something like that. So that sort of just fed on right through my childhood yeah. So in terms of your, your academic and professional career, I think you went on to get a, a doctorate from St. Andrews and then you worked for the uh, European Space Research and Technology Centre. That's right. And how, how did you get a job there? How did you end up working for those guys? There's a number of factors there. It was getting scientific jobs in the UK was not that simple in the early 90s. The logical thing was to look abroad. So I had to look somewhere, and I saw an advert, um, an interview in Holland, and I'd never been to Holland in my life. And it was in an area of astronomy that kind of vaguely related to what I'd done for my PhD studies. So I went over there for the interview, but then when I got there, I found that they'd actually they'd given that job already to someone. And I rushed like hell to deliver my PhD thesis like a week early so I could have enough time to go into Holland with interview. I was sort of quite stressed at the time. You know, I, mean, I wish you told me that that job had already been given away before I got on the plane. 
Well, they said, well, we have another job uh, open, and it's in, it's in a slightly different area of astronomy, but it might be of interest to you. And it's half of the job was looking after an astrophysical database. The, uh, the, the plus side of that was that I got access to all the data on this archive, much of which had never really been analysed. So that was that, and I, I went over for what could have been no more than a year, but it ended up being three years on that job, and then I uh, moved to Utrecht then in the Netherlands to do a postdoc position there, and then I eventually ended up back at STEC, back at the European Space Agency for seven or eight years. So uh, you know, that ended up being probably a quarter of my life, or half my life, whatever it was, but, um, but it was good. I mean, it was just like happy accident that that came about, but uh, I'm very grateful for it, because I got, you know, I got to go work in Europe outside of the UK, broadened my horizon, surrounded by an international professional community to expose to lots of different cultural influences to learn a lot more about people and I found it very enriching and I, you know, I wouldn't have missed that for the world. It sounded like it was a good grounding for the creative work that you do now. Is that the case? Possibly, although I'd already broken into the magazine market before I went to the Netherlands. So I was sort of on the way to being an established writer, but I felt like I was on the way. And when I look back at the stuff I wrote in the team, I would say all of the grand obsessions, they're all, they're all sort of present there. So I think I was sort of predetermined to be a certain type of writer. Yeah, okay. I want to ask you a little bit about researching now and the way you do the research that you do. And obviously, uh, you have to do a certain amount of research, sort of scientific and astronomical research in what you do. But I'm also quite interested in how you approach research in the round. So thinking about kind of broader cultural themes. What's your approach there? What are the sorts of things that you do to research for the work that you, you produce? Well, the first thing to say is that I don't like to be tied down to doing specific research for specific work. And what I prefer to do is just read widely and discriminately as part of my normal day-to-day life. That's my research. But at any given point, I obviously don't know what will turn out to be useful a year or two down in terms of fiction. Whenever I try to do it the other way around, whenever I sort of said, well, I'm going to read a scientific article and I'm going to get a piece of fiction out of it. never worked very well. I just need this much longer gestation period. I need, you know, ideas need to sort of fester. And the way that it works for me is just to read indiscriminately and just try and remember where you read things so that a couple of years later, you might start writing a story. Oh, hang on, this little bit here actually, I sort of vaguely know something about it. Where did I read it? You know, which issue? And then you sort of spend half a day trying to dig out the information. That's how it works for me. So I, I tend to have a sense of the shape of the story before I start putting in the research. I trust to myself that the sort of nuts and bolts of the story will still function once I've actually gone and done the, the heavy lifting of the actual research. Do you tend to use research to drive the actual plot and storyline, or do you tend to use it more to enrich the setting? and tone of your work. I think it's more the second case. I mean, I tend to come up with story ideas that are not contingent on a particular scientific idea. I write the story, drawing on my broad knowledge, which we all have, that gets me through the story. And then I tend to look at the story and think, well, where can I enrich certain aspects of it with some more detailed research? I don't particularly enjoy research. I don't particularly find that it makes for a better story. I mean, all the stuff in my writing that I'm genuinely proud of is really tends to come from the subconscious, I think, rather than something I've read. And that's, that's kind of the impression I've got from your work is that actually you do have your storyline and you have the structure but to use your word it, it's enriched by some of the things that you can bring in that certainly isn't limited to just scientific understanding and research That's that could be world music for example or, or some other aspect yeah very much so and also you can't really legislate for that stuff you can't plan it in advance particularly if you're writing a novel which might be a year's work a lot of influences will come your way during the, during the process of that right so your sort of cultural antennae are twitching all the time thinking oh I could use that you know so you're you're always sort of on guard for these, but you have no idea what they're going to be. Yes, yeah. So looking at the breadth of work that, that you've produced, some of it is set in the relatively near future, but other stuff is set 
far way far in the future so for example house of sons is set very far in the future and then you've got some other work which is sort of kind of somewhere in between like the prefect and revelation space what are the differences in your approach from say working on a project like blue remembered earth or that series compared to a story which is set far far in the future i think the 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 nearer you get to the present it's more of a challenge with something like blue remembered earth it's only 150 years in the future so you've got to have at least an intuitive sense of how you get from here to there, whether it's the, the social and political institutions that you have in the background. I like to feel that there's at least an implicit roadmap that, that would get us from here to there. Whereas I don't have to necessarily worry about that when I'm writing about something set 600 years in the future, and certainly not something that's set 6 million years in the future. When you're doing something like The House of Sun, then there's a whole other set of challenges that have arrived. The primary one for me is that when you're writing things in a very, very distant future, how do you stop it getting all a bit whimsical and patched and feeling a bit like this gods debating the, the, the fate of mortal? How do you ground it in a way that you start caring about the fate of the characters? And that tends to come as part of the organic process of writing it. Whatever time frame you're writing, whether it's the present or the past, and also the history, they all have a particular set of challenges. Part of the, uh, of the, of the attraction of the subgenre, then no two subgenres have the same set of literary sort of pitfalls. So it keeps it interesting. I think I would want to ask you a little bit more and explore that slightly, actually. So if you have, let's take House of Sons, for example, are you thinking about how you keep all that grounded when you're dealing with characterization, perhaps? Or, or what, are, what are the techniques that you would use to, to stop us as, as readers thinking that this is all just too distant and too far away and too ethereal. First thing is I try and look at what other writers have done and try and learn from the, the you know when they've got it right. And there were two primary literary models in, that I had in mind. One was Arthur C. Clarke's City of the Stars, which is his only really distant future novel. It was adapted from a shorter story, but and in terms of things that he wrote at novel length, that's really the only one that takes place millions of years in the future. And it is about protagonists who have essentially godlike powers, but Clark's very careful to establish that they also have limitations, that they, you know, there, there are things they can't do. Uh, not everything is possible if anyone's in the story. It's not it's not a, a, an arbitrary setting. And I thought, okay, with we'll, House of Suns, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give them the capability to zip around the galaxy at the speed of light, but there are still, a, there's still things they can't do. You know, they, they, they can't travel faster than light. They don't have the capability to communicate with all the cultures they might want to, and so on. And uh, it just grounds it a little bit. The other sort of literary model was the very far future works of Gene Wolfe who wrote one of the sort of seminal works of science fiction of the last 30 or 40 years. It's a touchstone text for me, and it's the book I've come back to time and again. And it sort of, it is set again millions of years in the future, ostensibly on Earth. And all the surface trappings feel like fantasy, but when you dig down a little bit deeper, you find that there's a sort of scientific rationale for much of it. And one of the things that I've tried to take from world is the offhand lack of an explanation on the page, leave the reader to join in along the dog. And I like that. I like it as a reader and I also like it as a writer because it enables me to get closer to the heads of the characters. So I don't have to have them constantly explain to each other how things work um, because they are embedded in this milieu. So you, you hope that the reader who's, who's along for the ride will trust that things will gradually come into focus. And with Wolf, you know, you, you don't have to wait terribly long to start getting the payoff. You know, within a few chapters, the Book of the New Sun. You learn that the, the sort of implicit history of clearly includes the memory of the Apollo mission, except they've completely misunderstood what the Apollo missions were, which they would 10 million years in the future. 
There's beautiful, beautiful moment where you suddenly, you suddenly think, oh, we're not reading some Tolkien-esque thing set in Middle Earth. We're actually something set on Earth. And then you start picking up on all these other little sort of things that Wolf has built into the text that tip you off as to what's going on. And it, to me, it's very satisfying as a reader. Um, on the first pass, you probably already get about a quarter of it. And then the next time you read it, you start picking up on other things. And then there are also all these other layers of... of complexity would be built into it about the interrelationship between the characters and the religious imagery and the language. So it, it, it's a sort of, you can keep mining it for, for many, many years. So I enjoy that a lot. And I don't say that I've approached that level of crack with anything I've written, but you've always got to aim for something. And, you know, I, when I wrote House of Sun, again, I, am, I was going through one of my periodic movies in the Book of the New Sun and trying to learn from the master. And I wanted to ask you a couple of things around characterization and, and that aspect of the craft. What are the main things that you've learned about characterization as you've developed as a writer? I think two things. One, I've learned that I need to pay a lot more attention to characterization. Second thing is that I'm at a complete loss as to which of my characters the readers will identify with or will develop some sort of fascination with. And the ones that they, they couldn't care less about. I mean, I, I, it's genuinely out of my control how this process happens. All I can do is just keep working to the, to the limit of my craft, if you like, in terms of building the, the story and the characters in the world and the plot. I just hope that at some point you reach a sort of tipping point where it all sort of comes together and it, and it all sort of works in a sort of satisfying and harmonious literary whole. But I, you know, I see character as very important, uh, massively important, but it, it is nonetheless one element of the, it's one piece of the mosaic. I think readers are generally more forgiving. I mean, they will forgive anything, I think, in the story, if the characters are strong. I think they will forgive weak plotting, they will forgive coincidence, they will even forgive, this is a terrible thing to say, but a lot of readers don't particularly care about the quality of the prose. But provided the characters are strong, you know, almost anything else is forgivable. Where I start company with a lot, a lot of the reader responses you read on the internet is this thing about, um, oh, I couldn't identify with these characters and there's none of them I'd like to spend any time with. And to me, that's completely the wrong way to think about fiction. It's not about liking the character. You, you must compulsively find out about what's going to happen to the next. But that's not, in any, in any sense, dependent on liking the character. You can detest them, but you're still fascinated to, to find out what happens next. And I, I'm quite happy to read a piece of fiction where I don't like any of the characters, provided I'm wrapped up in their fate. I mean, the, Good writers make it seem effortless. You know, they can just um, immediately, you know, put you in that frame of mind where you've got to find out what happens next. And it's a gift. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to know what some tricks are. But I, I'm still learning, I think, on the job and trying to get better with it. And I suppose a lot of writers would say, even even very accomplished writers would say that they are still learning on the job. Well, you could say that what is character? Character is a sort of understanding of human nature. And do we ever stop learning about human nature as we go, go through life, you know? I mean, no, we should It's part of life's journey. We, we don't sort of reach a certain point in our writing career where we have a sort of fixed model of human human behaviour and say, well, that's it. Stop. I understand that. If we, if we did, we'd be sort of like geniuses. And, and I suppose if you look at the, the Poseidon's Children book, then obviously they are more character-focused. But that's what was required by the artistic demands of that set of books. Right. And are there particular techniques or uh, things that you do to help you realise and flesh out who your characters are? I write the stories with a sort of a cast list of people. And sometimes when I start writing the stories, some of these characters are already well differentiated, if you like, in my head. And I can sort of see how they would react and how they, how they would be discriminated by the, by the way they behave and the way they talk. Once you start getting down to the sort of um, the secondary characters, then I find it a lot harder to maintain that sense of distinctness of the characters. What I then hope to do is I go through the book 
is to try and put little uh, quirks and distinguishing features on these characters, but just try to bring them out as individuals um, using various fairly standard literary techniques, like modes of speech, you know, the, the way they interact with the other characters, are they nice, are they grumpy, that sort of thing. It's all, it's all bog-standard stuff, but it has to be done. And you can read someone like Stephen King. You know, even the, the, the most minor walk-on character will have some sense of individuality about them. And I think that, that that's something to be, to be uh, applauded, I think. And, I mean, character is, as you said, I think one aspect of the whole. How does plot and character work together for you in the creative process? It's a sort of synergy where I, I, I think I tend to come up with plot first and then character second be probably the wrong way to do it, but that's the way it works for me and it's not going to happen differently. So I have a sense of the story and I have a sense of what I want my characters to do. As I write, then you get this organic sense of the characters coming into focus. The problems then arise where you feel that your initial ideas for the plot result in forcing your characters to do something that they, they wouldn't necessarily do. Uh, so that at that point, you know, rather than change the character at that point, then you start, have, to, have to start sort of backing off and finding an alternative way to the plot, which you can generally do. It's, the solutions are always easy. It's recognising that there's a problem. It's a difficult part of our time. Something about this chapter that's bog, you know, bothering me, I can't quite see it. It's okay, because I'm trying to get this character to do something that they wouldn't do. Once you realise that, fixing it is generally not that hard. You can generally find a workaround. Um, but it's seeing that there's a problem, I think, is often the, the hard part. So it sounds like if you have a character who takes on a life of their own, let's say, they, they, they become so realised that they start to elbow their way into the story in different ways, you will flex and adapt the plot and the storyline to accommodate a, a character that is really becoming well-developed and you understand their motivations. Yes, I think a character that emerges from the page is a gift, and the last thing you want to do is crush that by giving them priority to the plot. I would always say let the characters dictate the story. So I know in previous interviews that you've given, you've paid tribute to Samuel Delaney and M. John Harrison as two authors who you look to for inspiration sometimes. What is it that you think we can learn from those two particular people? No point would I ever want to put them in the same box. I don't know how they feel about each other's writing. But I mean, I grew up with a fairly predictable set of influences. I read all the sort of big names that are, are, are recognisable now, Asimov, Clark. I certainly did, I didn't read the, the more literary end of science fiction, the new wave writers, the respectable writers, the, you know, Ursula Le Guin and Brian Alders and Moorcock. People you were supposed to read, I didn't read <laughs> until much later in life. When I was in my 20s, I started becoming more aware of what had gone on in the history of the field and then trying to sort of go back and trying to read the key words. But I, I have actually stumbled upon Delaney, uh, largely by chance, quite a bit before then. I'd been given a collection of science fiction, second-hand science fiction paperbacks, and one of them was Nova. And there was something about the cover that really fascinated me, that spaceships doing something. It was a very it was, um, enticing-looking paperback. It was only about 200 pages. And it was all about mining this precious element from stars that are blowing up. I thought, oh, this sounds great. Why can't I get into it? And every time I tried to read the damn thing, I could not get past the first few pages. It's so weird. But of course, that's often the hallmark of a work that will come back and haunt you, I think. And eventually I did read, read Nova, and I thought it was absolutely amazing. And this was before Cyberpunk. But when you read it, you can see that it sort of foreshadows a lot of, you know, the, the things you now associate with Cyberpunk. And it's, it's got stuff about, you know, the protagonists have these implants that enable them to hook into the control system of the spaceship. Pretty cool. I mean, this was stuff that he was writing this in sort of 1968 or something. Yeah, and a lot of the, the science in it is 
not really doesn't really stand up. But the um, the invented world feels really colourful and complex and rich. And he manages to do this in just 200 pages. That's quite an achievement. And it's got a fantastic ending as well, which I, if you've not read the book, I won't spoil it to you. But it's sort of the whole thing sort of gets wrapped up in a, as a piece of metafiction. Then John Harrison, I read The Centauri Divide. Well, it turns out that he wrote it as a kind of attempt to kill space opera, so I believe it, because he was so destructive at the sort of use of the form. So I'm, gonna, you know, I'm just going to kill it. I'm going to write the book to kill space opera. And, but the, the sort of irony, of course, is that there's a whole co- cohort of writers who, who read it when it came out and thought it was really cool, like Ian Banks. <laughs> so years later, there were like massive, big space operas that owe a debt to M. John Harrison. But I've read his more, more up-to-date book, and... What you just take from him is just a phenomenal use of language. I mean, he's just a, a marvellous writer. Incredible, economical, but at the same time, surgical precision of his prose. It's quite, quite something. And he still has this very pretty relationship with science fiction. I think he's wonderful, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I think it's great that, you know, that he hasn't mellowed <laughs> on any level. But yeah, so from Harrison, I, uh, I aspire to be as good a writer as he is. So this may be a hard question, but if you were going to nominate one book from each of those two writers that people should go away and think about reading, what would they be? Well, with, with Delaney, for me, it's always Nova, though. I think Nova is the one where it all came together. It's at that sweet spot where he then started getting a little bit more experimental. And you get the build-up to Dahlgren, which is this massive, um, difficult novel that is still one of the more forbidding texts within science fiction. Either it becomes a, the love of a lifetime or the dance off it half. Um, but for me, it's, it's still Nova because it's just such a beautiful encapsulation of all the all the good stuff about space opera. It's got space space pirates, cyborgs. Ships flying through the heart of exploding stars. It's got depictions of different colony planets. What more do you want? And it's in 200 pages. You know, it's like some of us, uh, you know, we barely got, got past the epilogue, you know, the prologue. by uh, page 200. So yeah, and with, with Mike Harrison, I, I would say read, read everything he's written. Um, read the short stories, but also if you, if there's one significant book, it was, I would probably say Light, which was his return to science fiction, probably after about 20, 25 years. It came out, uh, in the early 2000s, and it's, um, it's, it's an unabashed space opera, but about half the book is also, it's sort of, um, quite disturbing stuff set in the present day that is echoed and amplified and reflected by, by the space opera stuff. But yeah, if, if you you must set aside all preconceptions when you're reading um, M. John Harrison because you know, he's not operating by the same set of rules as a lot of science fiction writers. I'd say there's an utter disdain for genre and an utter refusal to write to anything but the highest literary standards. It's bracing, you know, it's like a sort of blast of cold air. Uh, <laughs> but very, very good stuff, you know, absolutely admirable. Do you think contemporary science fiction has lost some of its power? to tap into the kind of raw wonder of observing the universe and travelling in space and the, the things that perhaps drove us to the stars in the sort of 60s, that kind of thing. I don't know whether you, you think that has happened. And if, it, if you do, how do you think we could reclaim that awe and wonder? Well, it's not so much science fiction's problem. It's more of a sort of gradual sense of cultural disenchantment with science progress, I think. And I mean, there's still lots of science fiction still pushing the right buttons. You know, some, some of it's very good. And it does... It does pick up a readership, but you're fighting this really dazzling indifference to A, what we've achieved, and B, what we can achieve. 
you know, silly really dis- dis- despairing at times. And I, I've never, I've never sort of really lost my sort of enthusiasm. I love being on planet Earth, don't get me wrong, but I'd love to see a human presence in space. It's not about abandoning the Earth, far from it. It's about, um, you know, hopefully we'll be wiser stewards of our own planet. So that doesn't preclude us from going to the moon, going to Mars, and going touring the oceans of Europa, going out into the outer margins of the solar system and we can actually should should already be doing this now so for me the real frustration is actually what we're not doing this in the real world these ideas are are, are struggling to find an audience in in the wider leadership I think it's more symptomatic like general malaise Mm. is there anything we can do about that by we I mean people who are interested in science fiction, people who are writing science fiction, people who are interested in story in the broadest sense and people who are interested in entertaining and inspiring and enthralling people with story. Is there anything you think we can do to inspire people to then look again out from the earth and to be ambitious, I suppose, again, about what we do within our own universe? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of little glimmers of progress. I mean, for me, one of the impediments to thinking optimistically about the future at the moment is the sort of dominance of dystopian fiction, be it in, in the bookstores or, or on the cinema. And I, as a consumer, I don't mind it. I quite enjoy it. I quite like the Hunger Games films, but it is a sort of relentlessly grim and depressing view of the future. When I was growing up, things were much more balanced. You had the dystopians who gobbled up because they were fascinating and, and, you know, things like Survivors and, and, and 1984 and Brave New World. All of that was great and it made you think about the future and how you didn't want things to go in that direction. But we also had the, the, the sense that things could be exciting in the future as well and we might not love ourselves yet and we might become a little bit cleverer at sort of living with each other. And I think particularly within science fiction and particularly within young adult science fiction, we really do need a sort of corrective to this at the moment. Someone or, or people need to push the arrow back a little bit back in the direction of optimism. So the whole sizing with children thing is it was my attempt to try and do that a little bit. Try and write about the future in a way that wasn't all doom and gloom. And I want to keep on, although, although I've finished with that trilogy now, I do want to keep on that tack for a few books in terms of just not falling into relentless dystopianism. But I, I think also as consumers, we can celebrate the works that do go against the grain. So, I mean, something like Interstellar, which has had a sort of really mixed reception from the critics, and I, I saw it and I had sort of certain specific problems with it as a film. But I did like the fact that it was an unabashed celebration of going out into space. You know, there's no way that you can view that film as anything other than um, a massive endorsement of the space program. Yeah, and it was a very bold and confident piece of work, wasn't it, Interstellar? I know uh, not everybody's listening who listening to this will have seen that film but it had about it a kind of determined optimism about about what we could do in the interview with the director chris nolan he said explicitly that he wanted to he felt that he'd grown up in a time where the, the, the greatest achievement of our species was the apollo moon landing and there was nothing on the horizon to compare with that and no sense that people were even that bothered about it and he, he sort of shortchanged by that and i do feel i feel shortchanged that's not to downplay lots of the wonderful things we have, but I miss that sense that collectively, why aren't we aspiring to do more? Why can we find hundreds of billions of pounds and dollars for foreign wars, but we can't seem to find tenth of that for, say, um, you know, a mission to Europa or something like that? So, yeah, I, I mean, I get all utopian and <laughs> preachy about this, but <laughs> it is an important thing. Well, perhaps given, as you say, that there's quite a lot of dystopian future around and um, everybody's had a, a fairly good show of zombie apocalypse by now that actually having something that is that dares to be a bit more optimistic is now breaking the mold isn't it that that, that is that's going against the trend really it absolutely doesn't it doesn't mean that it can't be exciting gripping and thrilling you know? yeah 
Yeah. I mean, if you look at, say, you know, the James Bond films, for instance, I mean, I know, I know they, take, they take place in the fantasy world, but the underlying tone of the Bond films is fundamentally optimistic. It, there's, there's a sense that Bond is on the side of the angels, he's on the side of democracy and progress, and fighting to preserve a world where those values are, are cherished against the forces of darkness and spectre and smirch who want to do horrible things and play people and blow up things. So, you know, they, they, they can still be very enjoyable um, films. They don't have to be dull utopian tracks about how everything's lovely. Again, go back to Ian Bannon. His sort of great great model for utopian society was the culture, which he brought brought in many novels. But the culture novels are full of incidents and full of spectacle because the um, the challenge for the culture was how does it deal with all these other civilizations that are sort of brushing up against. So of course it was no great difficulty for banks to find lots of exciting storylines that, that made his books very rich. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a question of changing the moral not the moral compass, but the the, the, the sort of um, the compass of, of science fiction. Just so it's pointing a little bit away from tokenism. Uh, it just has some variety. That's all I'm asking for. Yeah, and and, and I think that's a fair a fair request. <laughs> Um, I, I would have a rant I went on. There. No, no, that's good. No, I, and I would I agree with you actually that um, there's there's a lot of talk of people writing uh, dystopian fiction, um, and I think perhaps you've touched on one of the reasons why people do that, which is because they think that they can't write a, a, a story which is essentially utopian and retain a strong storyline and retain tension within within the story they're presenting. And as you as well say, I think Ian Banks gave us ample examples of the fact that you don't have to have a dystopian world to have a fantastically good story and to have a lot of tension and to have a lot of excitement in, in what's being presented. I want to just move on and ask you a couple of other questions now about... Well, one, one other thing. But the, yeah, go on. The prevalence of this dystopian mindset, it just sets up this default assumption that the future is going to be worse than the present. Where are they? It's like, like well, that's a graph. The future could be good. It, it could be terrible. It depends on the decisions we take. But there's a whole generation of people growing up now sort of so- soaking up these dystopian ideas. And if you were in their shoes, you'd think, what's the point? Why, why should I bother? Everything's going to go to hell in a handcuff. So let's just, let's just sort of yes, yes. put our seatbelts on for the ride because it's all going to get worse and there's nothing we can do about it. And one of the sort of duties of science fiction is to present a range of possibilities, not one narrow channeling into one future. And I think you're right. I, I think this probably goes back to why I asked you the question a little bit earlier on about what can science fiction do? Because if, if art in the broadest sense can inspire us and in a very deep way inspire us, perhaps even morally inspire us or be visionary, then I think science fiction as a genre across all of its manifestations can do that, can can encourage people to think, not be naive, but to think big and to be ambitious and to be brave and, and to have grasp a vision, I suppose, of what things could be. Kind of on, done on the subject of, of perhaps more science than, than, than fiction, I did want to ask you for your opinion on one of the debates at the moment, obviously within, within uh, the realm of uh, astronomy and looking out in, into our universe around us. One of the things that is exciting, inciting some debate at the moment is the discovery of uh, thousands of exoplanets and the question of whether there is life in our part of the galaxy. And some people say, yes, there is life, but maybe it's not intelligent life. Some people say there isn't anything at all. I just wondered what your views were on that. Uh, my view is there are just too many variables at the moment for anyone to really sort of tell us and go at the, uh, as an answer to that. Because, yeah, we seem to be finding these planets in abundance. That's clear. And a lot of them are around not the stars we expected to find lots of planets around. 
you know, everything's different. We don't really have a clear sense of how you get these planets formed in these solar systems. We don't have a strong consensus yet, but the models are still debatable. And I was just reading something today about one possibility could be that in the early the early periods of the formations of these um, rocky terrestrials, these Earth-like planets, it's possible that all the volatiles get boiled off them due to what's going on about the early formation phase. So they might be arid. So again, you know, put some, just something like that could be a massive game changer in terms of the number of planets that are actually habitable for any kind of living organism. And I think we, we really don't really have enough to go on at the moment. So we're big on speculation at the moment, which I suppose is fun, but it, it, we're not. We're fairly light on facts and and evidence. Although we've got this vast tsunami of data coming in about exoplanets, in terms of our deeper understanding of the chances of life in the universe, we haven't really got anywhere compared to where we were 50 years ago. I still, I still think we're waiting for until we find one example of an organism that's evolved externally to Earth, be it in our own solar system or a comet or something like that. You know, we're, we're trying to argue from the data point of one at the moment. The, the history of life on Earth, which we don't fully understand. Um, so, you know, I, I, I find it endlessly fascinating. It, it is the most exciting area of contemporary astronomy at the moment. But I think we're a long way from having a really clear picture of the chances of, of, of life of the universe. I think we should be looking. It's, it's still very early days. Okay. I want to bring it back to creative writing and the craft of creative writing now then and if you look back at your career what would you say were the most important perhaps two or three lessons that you've learned about the craft over the years as a writer well one of the things that served me well has always served me well is to generally finish what i start and whether it's a short story or a novel but I will allow myself a margin of error of maybe a third or something like that. Like if, if I'm more than a third of the way through something, I've put that investment in the bank, if you like. I've got it. I, I, will, I will finish it. And generally, it's been worthwhile because what the, the things I've finished, I've generally managed to sell. I learned early on that regardless of what you're writing, whether it's a short story or a, or a longer piece, no matter how confident you are when you go into it, there's generally a, a, a crisis, a point in the writing, usually about halfway through, where you lose all confidence in the idea. What seems like a straightforward piece of fiction when you when you were writing the first paragraph, suddenly it falls on woolly, and you can't really see your way through to the end, and you think, oh, why have I started this? And temptation at that point is to put it aside and, and start another story. I've learned not to do that. I've learned that that, that that crisis is a perfectly normal part of the process. It's like the wall when you're a runner, you know, so it's just a... It's a sort of physiological thing that you hit, and, and all will be well if you can just push through that barrier. I'm I, I talking to um, another writer about novels, and we both independently mentioned that there's this thing you hit around 30,000 words. Oh, do you get that as well? The 30,000 word barrier? Yeah, I get that. Terrible, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, you just have to, to sort of bash through, I think. That task of bashing through the wall, has, have you been helped by doing a lot of planning and preparation up front. So if you if you're planning it, do you find if you if you've done a fairly comprehensive plan of all your chapters, that helps you to break through the wall and get through to the end? Well, it, it does to some extent, although I'm moving more in that direction. But with the story, I still tend to wing it. I'll often write a few little paragraphs of sort of reminders to myself, and then I you know I get bored of that. I think I just want to get on with the story now. I've developed a few little tricks that 
can get me over that hump. One is to actually try and write the ending because if you can write the ending of something, magically everything else seems to follow. It gives you somewhere to aim for, I think, and that, that's half the battle. So if I'm working on a short story and I sort of get bogged down, I can't really see my, my way through it, I will do my best to write the ending. And then suddenly I think, okay, I'm joining that up with that bit and okay, I'm done and I'm out of here. And that works so often, it's just miraculous. And well, you can do it to a novel, but it's much harder because, you know, obviously an ending of a novel is still chapters and chapters of work. But it's much sort of hard. You know, with a short story, you might only have a couple of fragments. You can kind of jump into the ending uh, and then sort of fill in the gaps. But with a novel, when you might have a, a large task in multiple settings, it's is nowhere near as easy. And I, I'm, I'm hoping then that, you know, working to a more sort of structured set of uh, outlines, it, it gives you sort of confidence you know where you're going. The other thing is momentum. Just when, when you're writing a lot every day, you build up a certain speed and it can kind of get you through the problem by sort of like sheer force of will. The third thing I've learned, which I didn't really learn it until someone told it to me years later, was I was patient. And one of the things I've generally been quite good at is sending material off to people, be it short stories and novels. And I'm just really just sort of not getting that bothered about what happens to it and then get on with something else. And it took me two years to sell my novel. But the, the first person I sent the book to did actually buy it. So it was never rejected. It just sort of sat in limbo for two years. Quite a bit later, she said, um, you know, one of the things that counted in your favor, she didn't, we had no professional working relationship at that point. You know me. She said, you just, you just didn't nag. So I always say to people, just, be, be chilled about it when you've written something just get on with something else because you'll become emotionally attached to the piece you're working on rather than the piece you've submitted and if the piece you've submitted sells great you've got another follower if it doesn't sell doesn't matter because you're committed to the, to the new thing so it's a sort of win-win and uh, I do try and live by my, live by my own rules to some extent and that I crack on with something as soon as I finish the piece of work I generally get on with something else you've given there some advice to aspiring writers is there any other advice you would give to somebody whether they're writing science fiction or in another genre or literary fiction or whatever is there other advice you would give to an aspiring fiction writer well i suppose there's particular challenges for breaking into any any area of writing any genre and they're all going to be a little bit different and my particular experiences won't necessarily be relevant to someone starting out now but i had a lot of lucky breaks due to I would say networking, just just meeting people, and can't really put a put a price on those those sort of chance encounters. The, the sort of traditional route into science fiction at the time was to write short fiction, get it into the magazine, make your name that way, and then hopefully build up enough of a head of steam that you could begin to get interested in novels. And that I think that to some extent is still a viable path into writing science fiction. Where it probably wouldn't apply to another genre because they don't necessarily have, you know, the established short fiction market. You know, it wouldn't work for crime fiction, but I'm not, I don't know anything how you break into crime. I wouldn't have a clue. But I, I, that's how I broke into the science fiction scene. And then within, um, I would say, a few months of my first publication as a science fiction writer, I was invited to a, a party in London. And, you know, almost everyone who was anyone in the world of science fiction publishing was there. And, and in fact, you know, the people like Kingsley Amis were, were, were there as well. So it was real sort of star study thing and I made so many contacts that night that would would pay off in years to come it's just people you meet and you and, and you, you shake hands with them and, you, and they know your name and you know their name so that may well apply as general advice across a number of genres, just in the context of take your opportunities when they come up, do network, find out where the people who are involved in your genre gather, or what is how does the market work for, for whatever you're writing in, and go to it and, and get into it and take chances there. Well, you've nailed it there, because that thing about how 
crowd at the market where so many people approach a genre without the obvious idea about what the market is. And I don't, I, you know, this to me is amazing when people say, I want to break into science fiction. How do I send short stories to magazines? What magazines are out there? I said, well, why are you asking me? You know this already. And like, you know, are you, if you're interested in science fiction, you already, surely you already know the field. It's just, it's absolutely nuts that people have this approach. <laughs> well, you go to Amazon or Smith and you pick up the artist and writer's yearbook for stuff. Well, I guess if anybody hasn't done that yet, they, 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 they now have a clue. Go and find the writer's and artist yearbook. Uh, they may even find it in the reference section of the library. Go on Google, look, find out where the short fiction markets are or, or use the same broad approach for whatever your chosen genre is, find out what the market is. Yeah, because I mean, when, when I was starting off, and I, you know, I sound like I'm talking about Dickensian times here, but there was no internet, or there was an internet, but no one knew about it, it was only used by scientists. But I started trying to break into the magazine market in the mid-1980s, and it was really hard. But, you know, you were kind of aware that the magazines were out there, but finding out what their postcode records were was tricky. And you find little clues, like there'd be little um, tear-off coupons in the back of the paperback, tell you how to subscribe to a particular magazine. And that's how you did it. But the beautiful thing was, as soon as you discovered one magazine, it was like a whole world was open to you because that, that magazine would then be full of adverts for other magazines. And you'd start, you'd very quickly get all the information you needed. And you know, it was no longer a problem. Now, if I could do that before Google, surely it's not insurmountable for people to do it now. No, I'm sure it's not. So I want to ask you a little bit about the current projects uh, that you're working on. So I'm thinking particularly here about your Poseidon's Children series uh there's two of those books out now uh so we've got blue remembered earth we've got on the on the steel breeze i think there's a third one on the way soon is there anything that you can tell us about that third book yes the the third book is more or less done and dusted it's just going through the final um editing stages at the moment it has a title and the title is poseidon's way which is um that was my working title for the book. And I thought, well, you know, I often have a working title that no one likes. But, uh, but it, it went down well with um, editing and marketing. So I still didn't hate it. So uh, we, we decided to run with it. I, I, I'm terrible with titles. And, uh, and it's really, really difficult. But um, I, I believe we're still sort of on target for publication in April. Thank you, Pippin. Okay, so April 2015, obviously people can start to look for it before then. I imagine things will start to surface anyway. Okay, if I'm a, an Alistair Reynolds fan and I want to find out where your work is or find out anything about what you're up to, what do I do? Well, if I need to remind myself of anything of my own work, I've generally got a Wikipedia now because there's a very comprehensive Wikipedia page which has links to all sorts of different stuff about my different writing. Um, I have a, a, a web page, www.com. AlastairReynolds.com, which find out about all my short stories. The books are all in print. They're all available in paperback from good booksellers and bad, bad booksellers as well, indeed. But the short fiction, about half of it's in the collections, which are now generally readily available. Some of the other stuff is a little bit harder to track down. But if you're, if you're sufficiently cursed, you know, perseverant, you, you will find it all. We're doing the best of 2015 as well, which will be... I'm really thrilled that it's happening. That will mop up a lot, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stories will, will be in. Yeah, it's from, uh, it's from an American publisher called Subterranean Press, but they're, you know, they're, um, they've, they've been very good to me um, over the years, Subterranean. They've done a lot of sort of limited editions with my novellas. So again, in 2015, we, sh- we should be looking out for that for a best of... Yeah, generally, um, dig around on the internet, find out what I've been up to. You can email me um, if there's a particular story of mine that you're having real trouble tracking down. Drop me an email, see what I can do. I try and help my readers if there's some of the really struggling to find. And, you know, and, and uh, I'm always there to, to answer questions. I mean, I'm not the fastest at 
turning around on, on these stories, trying to get there in the end. And the other thing is Twitter. I'm a, I'm a sort of enthusiastic Twitter user. I'm very, very good for that kind of, um, when's your next book coming out or what, who, who published this? I see you've got a story come out, coming out in interview. Is that connected to the Revelation State Universe? And, you know, that kind of question I, I, is very, 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 very good for Twitter. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time, Alistair. Is there anything else, is there any, anything else you wanted to say before we finish? Thank you for a very interesting set of questions. Um, uh, it's really, really nice to talk. I've really enjoyed it. Okay, well, thanks very much again, Al. That was great. Thank you so much, Andrew. Bye-bye. All right, cheers. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.